You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, thank you so much for our time of study this afternoon. We pray now that we will just bring it all together and uh, just help us, Lord, to understand the relevance and importance of this precious doctrine of the sanctuary. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a couple of brief announcements before we dive into this last session for the afternoon. Um, Pastor Cameron and I were just discussing the fact that we have some bits and pieces left of the handouts, but we know some have come asking and we haven't had the whole thing. There's also people who have come maybe midweek and didn't get anything from the beginning of the week. So we are going to attempt to have uh, at least, you know, come early. <laughs> I don't know how many we'll be able to get. Um, but we're going to attempt to have a, a little stack of each handout available tomorrow uh, at the beginning so that you can make up any handouts that you may have missed. And then, of course, we're going to have them available online as well, if you prefer online. And I believe we're going to go to what? MichiganSSPM.org. If you go to the resources page and just scroll down, there's a little thing called Files. You can find Camp Meeting and all the things inside of that. So the resources page of MichiganSSPM. There you got it. You got it? MichiganSSPM. That stands for Sabbath School Personal Ministries.org. I'm going to do my own little plug of this book, Spread the Word and tell you, you just need to get it, because we worked really hard. Um, but beside that, besides that, this is the third uh, volume of our Grow Your Church series, and uh, those of you who are in touch a little bit with what we've been doing here in Michigan over the last several years, or what is now being promoted through the General Conference, um, Grow Your Church is a disciple-making process. It's a disciple-making model that fits with the model of Jesus, the agricultural model of preparing the soil, planting the seed, cultivating spiritual interest, harvesting decisions through appeals, and preserving the harvest with discipleship. And we're creating resources for every one of those parts of the soul-winning process to help individual members and local churches. So who thinks they know which phase of the disciple-making process this book addresses. Preserving is the discipleship handbook. So the preserve phase that somebody just guessed, I'm trying to make it hard, Cameron. The preserve phase is the discipleship handbook. That book is used after you baptize someone, and it goes through a whole bunch of practical aspects, the devotional life, um, witnessing, church life, Christian standards, the cycle of evangelism. It trains and nurtures a new member after they're baptized. Of course, you need a mentor to go through it with them, but that's the discipleship handbook. That's to preserve the harvest. This one is called Spread the Word. Say it. See, I told you, Cameron, that somebody would get it. Okay, plant the seed. Now, if you're, if you're like, oh, how am I ever going to remember that? It's brown. Right? Like the soil. Okay, this is planting. On the back it says plant. And there's the icon for plant. If you have ever uh, prepared someone for baptism or been prepared for baptism, we have a book that has a gold strip called Fundamentals of Faith, and it's for um, 
baptismal preparation. And that ties to the harvest, because you're harvesting decisions for baptism. Okay, We're working on a book on the cultivate phase, which is going to be green, because you're growing, you know, the grass is growing, whatever. Anyway, and cultivate is going to be the Bible study handbook, where we train people on how to give Bible studies. But this does not go into how to give Bible studies, but it does talk about how to get Bible studies. And it talks about, first, the foundations of witnessing, so spiritual power for witnessing, the witness of a Christ-like character, taking the initiative. It talks about the foundation for witnessing. Then it talks about the importance of sowing bountifully. The reason that our churches don't grow is because they do not follow this. They don't have interest coordinators because they don't have interests. Their mind is not built around generating interest. The, the mission of the church is to generate spiritual interest and follow through with that spiritual interest, to find spiritual interest. That's the work of the church. And so planting is necessary to do that. Now, the simplest way to plant is to have spiritual conversations with people or to share your testimony. There's a chapter on how to do that. Another simple way is to invite people to church. Invite people to take a Bible study. Invite people to a concert or to Sabbath school. Invitations. You know that Jesus bade them follow me. You know what bade means? He invited them. Central to Jesus' soul-winning method was after ministering to their needs, He bade them, He invited them, follow me. But how few times we actually invite people. It's at the center of Jesus' method. We have to give invitations. So every piece of literature you give should have an offer for Bible studies connected to it. We should be inviting people to the services of the church. We should be making invitations. Remember in Revelation when it says, uh, and the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let who, him who hears say, Come. And Ellen White says, Those who have received the gospel invitation are to give the gospel invitation. It doesn't just say those who receive the gospel invitation are to accept it. It's those who receive the invitation are to pass on the invitation. So there's a whole chapter on how to and the importance of the power of invitation. And we need to Im implement that in our churches. Then, there's a whole section on literature. Literature, Active literature ministry is a dying art in the church. But Ellen White says that literature will be the means of mass conversions at the end of time. She says that literature will be the means of preparing people for the coming of Jesus, just like John the Baptist prepared people for His first coming. She says that about literature. She says that the publishing houses will do the work of the fourth angel who lightens the earth with his glory. So literature needs to become more of a part of the life of Seventh-day Adventists. There's a chapter on why literature, a chapter on the role of every member in sharing literature, and a chapter on how to run a local church literature ministry. How to do it. You need it for that. Then there's a whole equivalent section for media because we're living in a new age. So there's a whole section on why media ministry, how church members can use technology for ministry, and how a local church can run a media ministry. And then, did you know that Ellen White says that wherever a church is, they should visit the people in their territory and know their spiritual condition? So there's a whole section on visiting your territory. How to divide up your territory, 
how to visit your territory, how to go to homes, multiple different methods of going house to house, uh, how to organize a Sabbath outreach. And there's three chapters that cover visiting your territory. So this is all about planting the seed, and you need to get it. Okay, that's all I got to say about that. Okay, let's dive back into the sanctuary. Are you ready? So, we are going to go to Daniel chapter 8. If you could pick one verse that the Seventh-day Adventist church was built upon, what would it be? If you could pick one verse that the Seventh-day Adventist church was built upon, what would it be? I hear some right answers. Daniel 8.14. It's really the verse that it's, it's all built on. You know that the three angels' messages come from Daniel 8, ultimately. Now, there's elements of the three angels' messages that are not in Daniel, but it begins with the idea of the hour of judgment, and that is a direct uh, conclusion drawn from Daniel. So, let's remind ourselves of some things. Are you ready for some uh, prophecy quiz? I know, I, I, I love talking about prophecy. Um, because people get what I call calculus eyes, where like, you know, if you're sitting in a calculus class and, you know, you hear them start talking about things, all of a sudden you kind of just glaze over. It's just gone. You're not even trying anymore. It's just, I, it's just too hard. That's what happens to some people the moment we start talking about prophecy. You know, dates, beasts, whatever, they just, just stick with me. This is not hard. It's not hard. Okay. Can you count to four? Prove it. One, two. Oh, well, nobody here can count to four. Don't be proud. Just say it with me. One, two, three, four. Babylon? Medo-Persia? Greece? Rome. If you can remember that, okay? If you can remember that, you have mastered a large portion of our understanding of prophecy. Now, where do we first see those four powers mentioned in apocalyptic prophecy? Daniel 2, okay? What do we see in Daniel 2? We see a great image, right? Got a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet and toes, iron and clay, right? So what do you have? You have the head of gold is? The chest and arms of silver are? The belly and thighs of brass, and then the legs of iron. Okay, and then you have iron and clay and ten toes. What do we have there? Divided Rome, okay, because the Western Roman Empire was divided by barbaric tribes. Okay, and then you have this stone cut out of a mountain without hands. It comes and crushes the image. By the way, where does it crush it? Feet, because remember, from a timeline standpoint, the toes are the latest, okay, that's at the end of time, so that's why it hits there, because it's referring to the second coming of Christ, and it's got a hit down at that time, the end of time. And then what happens to the uh, image? Anybody remember? It becomes like chaff on the summer threshing floor, and it's blown away so that no trace of it is found, okay? So this is really simple stuff, right? You all did it well. Four, okay, I added one. Five, but you got it, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome. Second coming. Okay, six. <laughs> All right. Then you have 
Daniel chapter 7. Now you know that Daniel chapter 7, even though it uses totally different symbols, follows the exact same timeline as Daniel chapter 2, right? If you didn't, you know now. Daniel had this vision in which he saw uh, four beasts and there was uh, a wind stirring up the sea and these beasts coming up out of the sea. Now, in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, the waters where the harlot sits, it says, are many peoples. So the symbol of water represents multitudes of people. So when you see the wind, does anybody know what wind represents in the Bible? Strife. Strife amongst the waters, which is people. What's that sound like? War, right? That's what it's referring to, conquest. These beasts are different kingdoms or nations, and they are conquering one another through war. That's all it's describing. So you have a beast come up, and it's a lion. Who's the lion represent? Remember the head of gold. Babylon. We're going to go in the same order. Then comes the bear. What's this uniqueness about the bear? Raised up on one side. Okay? Uh, Media Persia. Media Persia. You can do it with me. I know you want to. Media Persia. So Persia is the part that came up last, and Persia is the part that was greater. So much so that in history books, it's also often just referred to as the Persian Empire. But there was a Median part of that empire. Um, and you see that in, in Daniel. But at any rate, um, then you have, and that was a bear. It had three ribs, which represented three provinces of Babylon. That were not three provinces of Babylon, but Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon. That Persia was especially oppressing. Then after the bear came a leopard. The leopard had four heads and four wings. So what's happening in prophecy is it's just adding. Okay, It's, it's building on what, on what we have learned. So it's, it's, it's what we call pan and zoom. It's panning over the same period of time, but it's zooming in on more details. So the greater details now with Greece, before we just had legs of, you know, our belly and thighs of brass. Now we have this leopard with four heads because Greece was divided into four generals, four regions. Okay? And of course, prior to that, Alexander the Great was the general and, and king of Greece, you could say. And he died at a young age and his four generals divided up Greece. Now, Greece had four wings too. The leopard had four wings. What do wings represent in Bible prophecy? Speed. So the conquest of, of Alexander the Great and Greece was incredible. It was faster than ever had done before. He had different ways of, of, of uh, warfare and what have you that gave him great speed. And you see that symbolized in the prophecy. After the leopard, you have a dreadful beast. Okay, A dreadful beast. Dreadful. Terrible. There's no zoo animal to describe it. It's a dreadful beast. It has huge iron teeth. By the way, what were the legs made of? Iron. And then, so now we're to the fourth kingdom. Who is that? Okay. And then this beast has how many horns? 
ten horns. How many toes were on the image? We assume that, but we think it's a good assumption. <laughs> ten toes, ten horns, dividing of Rome again. But now we're going to zoom in, right, on details. And now, instead of just the ten horns and stopping there and, and coming to the second coming next, like it does in Daniel 2, it tells us about other things that are going to happen around that time. So we find that of these ten horns, three of the horns are plucked out by the roots. And a little horn pops up with a mouth speaking blasphemous words and eyes like the eyes of a man. And he persecutes the saints for a time, times, and half a time. This persecuting, blaspheming power comes up out of the fourth beast, which is again... Rome, and we understand, and if we wanted to take all the time to build it up, we could, but that this represents papal Rome, because Rome became very oppressive, especially as it combined church with the state and took on basically a, a Christian government, if you will, that ended up persecuting those that it viewed as heretics and beginning to elevating tradition over the Bible. So, then, what happens in Daniel 7, just testing your memory here for those of you who have read Daniel 7, after this little horn appears, what's the next thing that happens in Daniel 7 and verse 9? Okay, we're not, we're not, that's in Daniel 8. But in Daniel 9, you have this little horn and you have all this action going on. But what happens in Daniel 7 and verse 9? Okay, read it. Oh, well, don't read it. <laughs> Translate it. <laughs> no, that's okay. Okay, I'll read it to you because you're all so shy today. Daniel 7 and verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. What am I describing? What is the Bible describing? The judgment. What are the things you remember from what we talked about earlier when I was quoting this? The court was seated. That's evidence of judgment, right? Books being opened. The judgment is according to what's written in the books we learn in Scripture. And what about these thousands of thousands and 10,000 times 10,000? These are angels. Where is this being held? In the most holy place, in heaven, okay? And it, and it ultimately is what brings to an end what's happening on earth with the little horn. And you have, you know, the final dismissal of uh, evil. And you can see, notice chapter 7 and verse 21. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until what? Verse 22, Daniel 7, 22, until the Ancient of Days came. Okay, that was the beginning of what? The judgment, right? Because that's when the court was seated. Until the Ancient of the Days came. And a judgment was made in favor of who? Hallelujah, right? Made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So you have this picture of the judgment being integral in answering the charges of the little horn which if I had time, I would explain to you that the devil, Lucifer, in heaven wanted worship. When he came to earth, 
He wanted worship. He tried to get Jesus to bow down and worship Him. He said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world if you bow down and worship Me, right? The devil wanted worship. And then at the end, you go to Revelation, it's talking about the Antichrist power, and it says that the dragon gave him his authority. Right? The dragon, the devil, is the one who's using the Antichrist to get worship. Because if you look in Revelation 13, it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. And they'll worship the beast, or the dragon, who gave his authority to the beast. So there's this, what's really happening with this little horn is not the little horn, he's a pawn in the hand of the devil who's trying to get the worship that he wanted in heaven way back when. This is all part of the great controversy, friends. But ultimately the judgment is central. As you see here, he was prevailing. The little horn was prevailing. The devil was using the little horn. He was prevailing until the judgment. Until the cleansing of the sanctuary. The Ancient of Days came and the judgment took care of it. And that's the important thing for us to understand. It's good news for us. Now, that's Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Were you tracking with me so far? Then let's talk about Daniel 8. Daniel chapter 8. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but we again have animals. Tell me what the first animal we see in Daniel chapter 8's vision is. You will find it in verse 3. A ram with two horns. Tell me about the two horns. One was higher than the other. What's that remind you of? Medo-Persia, because remember the bear was raised up on one side. And what makes it really beautiful is that in verse 20, it says, the ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. <laughs> it's helpful when the Bible does that. Then after the ram, what's the next animal that we see? The goat. Tell me what you know about the goat. There's one horn. Uh-huh. Okay, and what happens? Who's he run after? The ram. How fast is he going? How do we know? That's not the only reason. He's not touching the ground. He's not touching the ground. Did anybody ever watch... Yes, we'll get there. Did anybody ever watch uh, Roadrunner? Okay, I know I shouldn't be saying it. But Roadrunner was so fast that he didn't touch the ground. And every time I read this... <laughs> Roadrunner. He was so fast, he ran in furious power. And it was so furious that he broke the horn, which was Alexander the Great. Okay, Greece under Alexander the Great. And then uh, the four notable ones came up in its place, right? So you have the dividing of Greece again. And the four generals. Now, this is where it gets interesting. If you look at chapter 8 and verse Eight. It says, therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So you have this new... Okay, now we were going through Daniel 2, Daniel 7. We went Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. We just had the ram, which was Medo-Persia. By the way, Babylon, this is right at the conclusion of Babylon. Babylon is about to pass off the scene. 
So in this vision, we start with Medo-Persia. That's why it starts there. Then you come to Greece, which is the male goat. Then you have this little horn. Who would we expect the little horn to represent? Rome. Now in Daniel 7, the little horn was on top of this beast, the fourth beast, and the fourth beast was Rome, so the little horn was papal Rome. But in this, you just have a, a horn, and this horn has two different stages to it. And I want you to catch this. Notice in verse 9, it says, Out of one of them came a little horn. Now, out of one of them. What is them? The Hebrew that ties this one of them not to one of the four horns, but to one of the four winds. Notice verse 8. It says, The large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven, and out of one of them, out of one of the four winds, or one of the four directions, came this little horn. Okay, And this we would understand to be Rome, but in a special sense, because notice verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. What direction is that? Well, it's three, pastor. Right. But I want you to think of it this way. Toward the east, well, I didn't get it right. Toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land is all horizontal. Because what direction does he go next in verse 10? And it grew up to where? To heaven. So the first was all what? Earthly. Earthly conquest. Then the horn turns north, if you will, vertical, and goes so far as to challenge who? In verse 11. The prince of the host, who is Christ, Messiah the prince. In Daniel, he's referred to as Messiah the prince. So what you have here is two phases of Rome. First, Rome when it's political. In history, we call that pagan Rome. Then you have Rome when it begins to challenge God Himself. And you have this authority taken by the church and by papal Rome that usurps the authority of God. And that's what you see here. So you have papal Rome in both Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. But the little horn in Daniel 8 is both pagan Rome and then papal Rome. Okay. Now here's a key point. Does anybody here have a study Bible that is not a Seventh-day Adventist study Bible. You do. Is it a study Bible, like it has study notes? Okay, I'm sorry, I should have clarified that a little bit clearer, but it needs to have study notes. There are a lot of these out there, okay? You go into a Christian bookstore and you can find all kinds of commentary Bibles, okay? You pick up any evangelical or non-Adventist study Bible, and it will tell you that this little horn of Daniel chapter 8 is not pagan and papal Rome, it will tell you that it is Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was a Seleucid king. Remember I said there were four regions of Greece, right? And it was divided up by the four generals of Alexander. One of those was Seleucus. And so they were a succession of kings in that empire, the Seleucid Empire. And Antiochus was the eighth out of 20 kings in the Seleucid Empire. But he had some special interest in persecuting the Jews in not allowing them to offer sacrifices. He defiled their you know, um, altar by offering pig on the altar and unclean things, etc. So people look at that and they look at some of the language and they say, this is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. 
I'm right now about to give you five reasons why all of the Christian world, other than Seventh-day Adventists, pretty close anyway, are wrong and that this cannot be Antiochus Epiphanes. You say, why are we doing this, Pastor? I'll tell you why. Because everything about Seventh-day Adventism rests on this. Because if you do not, if you, if, if this is not papal Rome, pagan and papal Rome, then our whole understanding of the 2300 days is wrong. It's not talking about 1844. The Advent movement is not correct. Ellen White's not a prophet. The Sabbath is not accurate. I mean, it all falls down. So, you kind of need to know that this little horn is not Antiochus Epiphanes because anyone else you talk to is going to argue from their study Bible that it is. Okay? Why do we know that this is not? Um, number one, when you look at the powers that are described here, the first one is a ram, right? And what do we learn about the ram in verse 4? At the end of verse 4, how much did the ram grow? He became what? The end of verse 4. I'm in Daniel 8, verse 4. At the end of the verse, what does it say? He became great. That was Medo-Persia. After Medo-Persia came Greece. Tell me about Greece in verse 8. He became what? Very great. So does that sound greater than great? He became great. But then, notice the little horn in verse 9. How great does he become? Exceedingly great. Do you not see how Scripture is giving you a progression? Persia became great. Greece became very great. This next power becomes exceedingly great. But how could one Seleucid king of one of the four regions of Greece be considered exceedingly great when the whole Grecian empire is called very great? And this is just one little component of it. That makes no sense at all. It has to be greater than Greece. And only Rome fits that. Number two, this particular vision has an interpretation given. And that interpretation you'll find in, uh, in the latter portion of Daniel chapter 8. And one of the specific things that, that Gabriel, the angel, says in giving the interpretation is found in verse 17. He says to Daniel, So he came near where I stood, and when he came I was afraid and fell on my face, but he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to when? The time of the end. So you have Persia, Greece, and then we believe Rome, Papal Rome, cleansing of the sanctuary, right? Which takes you all the way to the end of time. But most evangelicals believe it's Persia, Greece, and then one king of the one of the four Grecian regions, Seleucid Empire, Antiochus. That is far from the biblical time of the end. The vision refers to the time of the end, not the time of Greece. That's ancient history. So there's no way that that little horn can refer take you to the time of the end. Number three, we learn that this whole vision, the length of it from Daniel 8.14 is 2,300 evening mornings, 2,300 days. 
In Bible prophecy, a day is equal to a year, so we're talking about 2,300 years. What they try to do is say, well, Antiochus, it's not day for a year. That doesn't, that doesn't fit. Antiochus reigned for uh, actual literal days. But the problem is Antiochus didn't reign for anywhere near 2,300 literal days. It was more like, you know, 1,080 or something like that. So what they say is that the text doesn't literally say days, it says evening mornings. And so he reigned about half of 2,300. So that's evening one, morning two, evening three, morning four, and they try to tally it up to close to 1150, which would be half of 2,300. That's how they fit the time element to Antiochus Epiphanes. Doesn't fit. It doesn't fit because a, more, a day is not... You know, you can't count it that way, number one. And it's not exact, and it needs to represent a year in Bible prophecy. Another point. There are four horns on this grease uh, goat, right? And one of them represents the Seleucid Empire, right? Now there's another horn that shows up, and they're saying that's Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a Seleucid king. He is already represented by one of the four horns. Because the four horns represent the four regions of Greece. One of them is the Seleucid Empire. So you can't have an additional Seleucid horn. It's already represented there. So it cannot be Antiochus Epiphanes. And finally, there's a description in Daniel chapter 8 that says uh, that it pertains to the latter time of their kingdom. Where is that verse? Anyway, I've proved it to you already. You're already falling asleep. So the bottom line is, this refers to it being the latter time of the kingdom. This is going to happen at the latter time of the Grecian Empire. And Antiochus is the eighth of 20 Seleucid kings. He's actually more in the middle or beginning part, not the latter time. So, Thank you. Um, yes, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. And they think that's Antiochus. Well, it wasn't the latter time of their kingdom. It was 8 out of 20. So there are multiple reasons, and yet I'm telling you, you pick up any study Bible, any study Bible in your Christian bookstore, and it will tell you that Antiochus Epiphanes is undoubtedly the little horn of Daniel 8. So a lot rests on this for us, because we believe that this has to be talking about Rome. Now you get to uh, papal, pagan and then papal Rome. Now you get to the next part of Daniel chapter 8 after this little horn, and here's what happens in verse 12. Daniel 8 verse 12. Follow with me now. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? So he's wanting to know how long is all this going to take, but he's focusing specifically on the last part where there's all this awful stuff happening by the little horn. He's trampling the truth down to the ground, etc. He says, How long will the vision be? And the answer comes in verse 14, and he said to me. Now, it's interesting, by the way. One holy one asks another holy one. 
So imagine two holy ones up here. Hey, how long will the vision be? And the other holy one, instead of answering the one who asked him, looks where? In verse 14. He turns and looks at Daniel. And he said to me, Daniel said. So the, so the answer, so the, in other words, the holy one asked not for his own sake, but for Daniel's. The holy one asked, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifice? Da, 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 da. And he said to me, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So Daniel now knows the sanctuary is going to be cleansed at the end of this period of 2,300 days, but he's confused. He doesn't know what to make of it all. Then in verse 16, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man what? Understand the vision. Now, who's Gabriel? Is he like a low totem pole angel? He's like an angel, right? We understand that after the fall of Lucifer, he's up as the top angel. And he is being asked to make Daniel do what? That's important. Now, if an angel is asked to do something, a holy one, can we be sure he will do it? Yes, that's critical. Because he's asked, make this man understand the vision. So what does he begin to do? He begins to explain to him the vision. And we already read part of it. In verse 19, uh, I'm sorry, verse 20, he tells him, hey, the ram that you saw with the two horns, that's Medo-Persia. Then he tells him in verse 21, by the way, the male goat that you saw coming after the ram, that's Greece. Then in verse 22, he says, by the way, there's going to be four kingdoms that are going to come out of that one. That's why you see four horns. He explains it to him. And then verse 23, he goes into all kinds of detail about the little horn. He's going to have fierce features. He's going to have mighty power, but not by his own power. Again, that's because the Antichrist works by the power of the devil, not his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, prosper and thrive, destroy the mighty and also the holy people. That's persecution. He's telling him again about persecution, just like in Daniel 7, where we saw he persecuted. Verse 25, through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper. In other words, he's casting truth down to the ground and causing lies and deceit uh, and tradition over Scripture. We're seeing all that being described. And then ultimately, in verse, he gets to the end of verse 25, he'll even rise against the prince of princes, but it'll be broken without human means. So he has perfectly helped him to understand that there will be Medo-Persia, followed by Greece. Greece would be divided up into four kingdoms. And then a mighty kingdom would come who would persecute and do all these awful things. He explains to him the vision so that he can understand it. Then he comes to verse 26 and what happens? And the vision of the evenings and mornings. Why is that significant, evenings and mornings? Because back in Daniel 8.14, when it said for 2,300 what? Days. Do you have a marginal reading in your Bible on days where you can go to the margin and see what it literally means? What's it say? Evening mornings. It literally means evening mornings. 2300 evening mornings. So when Gabriel says the vision of the evenings and mornings, what's he talking about? The 2300 days. He's talking about the 2300 days and the cleansing of the sanctuary. And he says this part of it, which he hasn't explained yet, right? He's explained all the the kingdoms and how they're going to come one after the other. But then when he comes to the 2300 days leading to the cleansing of the sanctuary, he says the vision of the eatings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. He didn't explain it to him. What did he tell him to do? Let's seal it up. 
Let's seal it up. And then notice verse 27. We get a little hint of why he did that. And I, Daniel, <laughs> fainted. <laughs> like Daniel was a little overwhelmed. It was not time to lay on Daniel the cleansing of the sanctuary just yet. Daniel passes out. And notice the last part of verse 27. I was astonished by the vision, but what? No one understood it. Now, what did, was Gabriel told to do for Daniel? Make this man understand the vision. And yet, he didn't yet fully understand the vision. He was only told to seal it up because it's true and it refers to the future. Are you tracking with me so far? Now, what happens next? Daniel, it's years later, and Daniel's praying because Jeremiah had prophesied that there would come a time, 70 years, and, and the captivity would be over. And so he's praying, and he has this beautiful prayer, and at the end of his prayer, we read what happens in verse 20. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning. So you follow what's happening. He's like, okay, this is the same angel that was helping me understand the 2300-day vision, but we, we got stopped. Notice what it says. Being caused to fly swiftly, he reached me about the time of the evening offering. Verse 22, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have... What's the next word? Now. As opposed to before. Right? Like there was unfinished business, right? He had, he had revealed everything, but when it came to the 2300 days and the cleansing of the sanctuary, he said, hey, seal it up, your first many days in the future. And now here comes Gabriel back and he says, I have now come to give you skill to understand. Right? He's coming to finish the job. He's going to explain to him the 2300 days. Are you tracking with me? You have to be because this is how William Miller got masses of people to believe that Jesus was going to come in 1844. Just this exact argument. He says, this is clear. He's right now, whatever he says next is going to be the explanation of the 2300 days. That's what's going to come next because he's explaining what he did not finish helping him to understand back in chapter 8. Now, he says in verse 24, 70 weeks are what? Determined for your people and for your holy city. Who were Daniel's people? The Jews, and the holy city was Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So you have 70 weeks, Daniel, for your people. Now, 70 weeks are, what was the word? Determined. That word is translated from a Hebrew word that literally means, and you can read it in many places where it's just talking about animals and what have you, it literally means cut off. It figuratively means determine or decree. So the translators have used the figurative meaning of the Hebrew word but in the context, knowing that Gabriel was right now going to explain the 2300 days, it makes sense that he would enter with a time element, and he does. Seventy weeks are cut off for you 
and your, for the holy people in the holy city. So here we see how Adventists understand we can get to the beginning of the 2300 days because we now have the 70 weeks are a part of the 2300. The 70 weeks are cut off from the 2300. Because the very next verse says in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So the word from signifies what? A starting point. So we now have a starting point, not only the 70 weeks, but since the 70 weeks are cut off from the 2300, we now have a starting point for the 2300. And that starting point is the command to restore and build Jerusalem. And it takes you all the way to Messiah the Prince. And I only have about five more minutes, so I'm just going to explain a couple things. And, I'm, and I want to point you to, and most of you have been through this before, but I wanted you to see the argument all the way from Daniel 8 through so that you can understand how it's explained. But this is going to help you with the dates and all those things. This is your timeline. But let me just say this. When, when we read here, 70 weeks are cut off. I remember asking myself, you know, I'm kind of an analytical type. I said, well, how do we know that it was cut off from the beginning? You know, we Adventists say that we have a starting point because the 70 weeks are cut off from the beginning. But how do we know that the 70 weeks are not cut off from the middle or from the end? There are ways that we can know that. If the 70 weeks were uh, cut off from the end and you went 2,300 days back, it would take you way back into antiquity. But the 2,300-day prophecy begins with what animal? Daniel 8 begins with what animal? A ram. And that ram represents what kingdom? Medo-Persia. So, the 2,300 days must begin in the time of Medo-Persia. If you took the... 70 weeks off of the, or I'm sorry, the 2300 days, if you said that the 70 weeks were at the end of the 2300 days, then you'd have to back way up to a beginning that way predated Medo-Persia. It has to start in the time of Medo-Persia. So it makes sense that the 2300 days begins at the same time because this beginning point of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, guess what empire gave the command to restore and build Jerusalem? The Medo-Persians. Okay? So it makes sense that we would begin the 2300 days at the same point as the 70 weeks. Now let me just give you a quick flyby. What you have is, is 70 weeks. Okay? How many days is 70 weeks? 490. Okay? In Bible prophecy, a day is equivalent, and these, you can see this in your notes, but a day is equivalent to, in Bible prophecy, a year, okay? Ezekiel 4.6 is an example. Uh, Numbers 14.34, you can see where prophecy, they have a day is equal to a year. So, you have 490 years. Now, if you have to go 69 weeks, 7 and 62, how many is 7 and 62? 69. 69 times 7 is how many days? 69 times 7? You've got a timeline in front of you. Just tell me. 69 times 7? Okay. 70 times 7 is how many? So subtract 7 from 490. 
483. Seven weeks and 62 weeks is 69. So it'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks until Messiah the Prince from the commander of Stormbill Jerusalem. There were three commands, you can see them, find them all in Ezra, that talk about rebuilding Jerusalem. But only the last one, the decree of Artaxerxes, included restoring Jerusalem and its civil laws. Okay? And that's why in, in uh, Ezra 6.14, for instance, it talks about them as one command. Um, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes as one command. Because ultimately, they weren't really complete the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the last one, which happens in uh, 457 B.C. Okay? We know this date. This is a solid date. So the command to restore and build Jerusalem is in 457 B.C. If you go 69 weeks from that, that's 483 years. Okay? That takes you to the year from 457, the command to restore and build Jerusalem, we, and you can read that in Ezra chapter 7. I'm just repeating what's already in your notes, but I'm giving it to you in fast speed here. But the seventh year of Artaxerxes is going to be 457 B.C., and that's going to be the beginning point. Know from that point to Messiah the Prince, that's Jesus, but it doesn't say Jesus, it's Messiah the Prince, and Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. Anointed one. So there's going to be 69 weeks or 483 years until Jesus is anointed. Beautifully, the Bible tells us in Acts 10.38 when Jesus is anointed. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And wouldn't you know, if you read uh, the account of the baptism of Jesus, and you can find in Luke chapter 3, for instance, it gives you exactly when John was baptizing in the Jordan. And it was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius started co-reigning in 13 AD, so the 15th year is 27 AD. And wouldn't you know that's exactly 483 years from the commander's store in Bill Jerusalem until he is anointed at his baptism in 27 AD. That's 69 weeks. There's 70 given to them, so there's one week left. It says the Messiah will be cut off in the middle of that week. Well, we know from the book of John that Jesus' ministry lasted three and a half years. From the fall to the spring. So you, he died in the spring. Um, so what you have is three and a half years, exactly the middle of one week. right? And Jesus died. And it says the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. We know from Corinthians, he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. We know from Isaiah 53, it was our uh, wounds that he took and our stripes. Uh, that's not right. Our sins that he carried. His stripes, but our sins. Ultimately, what you see throughout Scripture is that Jesus died on behalf of us, and that's all that Daniel was saying. So then you get to the Last three and a half years before, uh, before the 70 weeks is up for Israel? Well, he's died now in 31 A.D. Three and a half years takes you to 34 A.D. What happens in 34 A.D.? Stephen is stoned in 34 A.D. Who was standing by watching him be stoned? 
Paul. Paul, Saul, or Paul, he was persecuting the Christians, right? Now, who was he? He was the apostle to the Gentiles. What you see happen after the stoning of Stephen is immediately, Paul is converted, the apostle to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 10, Peter is told to go and meet with this Gentile Cornelius, right? Suddenly the gospel immediately begins going to the Gentiles. Why? Because at the stoning of Stephen, that was the end of the probationary period given to the Jewish nation. Now the gospel would go to the Gentiles. does not mean that individual Jews could not be saved, but it simply means as a people, they were no longer the chosen vessel of God. The gospel was going to the Gentiles. Fascinating point. If you read in Daniel chapter 12, it talks about uh, uh, Michael standing up, the great prince that stands watch over your people. Do you remember reading that in Daniel chapter 12? And Ellen White describes how that is at the close of probation at the end of time. Jesus stands up. Well, I find it fascinating that at the close of Israel's probation, you know, all through Scripture you see uh, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God and these, is the language. But he, in, in chapter 12, Michael stands up, and then at the stoning of Stephen, Stephen looks up and he sees, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He had stood up because it was the end of probation for who? For the Jewish nation. Now here's the point. 70 weeks. But those 70 weeks were cut off of what? The 2300. So if Stephen was stoned in 34 AD, then we have 1810 years left of the 2300. So you just have to take 34 and add 1810, and it takes you to 1844. Specifically, the fall of 1844, and as we know from Adventist history and uh, Samus uh, Snow, it was October 22, 1844, the Day of Atonement year. So we have this picture, beautiful picture in Scripture pointing forward to the cleansing of the sanctuary beginning in 1844. At the same time that God is raising up a movement, Christ is moving into the most holy place for this last phase of ministry where He's going to be involved in cleansing the people now that the truth is being restored and preparing them for His coming and through that process, vindicating His own name before the universe. This is the 2300 days. I would encourage you to get a book, even if I had had time to take two of the hours to just go over the timeline, you would still forget. So here's what I recommend. There is a book called 1844 Made Simple. It's written by Clifford Goldstein. Clifford Goldstein has some great stuff. You know, some you may prefer more than others, but I'll tell you this. That particular book is my absolute favorite by Clifford Goldstein. It is not complicated, just as the title says. It is simple. And you, if you reread the first several chapters over and over, you will be able to get it. You'll understand the parallels between Daniel 2, 7, and 8, and you will get the how to teach the 2300 days. By the way, the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 8, you know, all of these things paralleled. You know, you had Babylon, Greece, and Rome were all paralleling in all of these prophecies of Daniel 2, 7, and 8. What's the parallel to the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 7? Remember, 
Rome is in Daniel 7, right? The beast with the ten horns and then the little horn. Rome is in Daniel 8 with a little horn that goes first horizontally and then vertically. So you have Rome and Rome. So then right after Rome in Daniel 7 is the judgment. One like the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days, right? And then right after Rome in Daniel 8 is what? The cleansing of the sanctuary. The cleansing of the sanctuary is a term that is parallel to the judgment scene in Daniel 7. I mean, it's perfect. It's undeniable. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we have a wonderful message to give to the world. Not about a Christ who just lived and suffered and died, but a Christ who ascended to heaven and is now ministering as our advocate in heaven and preparing a people for His coming which we believe will be very soon. I'm so sorry that we didn't have more time than we did. It's just too big of a topic. But thank you for being here. Tomorrow, we're going to study a very non-controversial topic. We're going to talk about Christian standards. So hopefully uh, you can join me as we talk about health, as we talk about entertainment, as we talk about modesty. Oh, it's going to be fun. So join me for that tomorrow at 2.15. Let's pray so you can get off to supper. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this wonderful group of people, for their attention, for their love for you, for their desire to know and follow the truth. I pray that you bless them with your spirit and use us, Lord, to give this message to the world. Present truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.